this morning I'd like us to consider a very famous passage in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 11. A lot of people, as you know, believe that verses 6 through 11 were the, perhaps, perhaps the earliest hymn uh, written in the Christian church. Some wonder if Paul himself was the author or if Paul was quoting it. Uh, we don't know any of those sorts of details, but it is one of the richest. Uh, this is just one of the richest sections that that there is. I remember, oh dear, almost almost twenty years ago, uh, reading this section as a Christian for the first time, and uh, just spending an hour or two. Just going over it again and again and again and again. This is the word of God. Bless you. (laughs) That wasn't, but this is. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, you you give us this text to call us to 
material and tangible change in our attitudes and actions. And you hold up before our eyes Christ Jesus crucified as our example. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will be enabled to see clearly what pleases you and how we are to act towards one another. I pray that these things will be real, genuine and true, that these attitudes which we are to have will truly be found in us, that we will be like this, that when you see us, you will see people who without hypocrisy, but in the deepest place of their heart and soul, bear these attitudes towards one another. Father, help us more than anything to marvel at what your Son has done for us, for his great love for us, and for his willingness to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, for our sake. Lord, help us to understand, help us to be what we ought to be, and help us to do what we ought to do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the text doesn't begin uh, with a series of rhetorical questions. But you can phrase these very rhetorically. That is the point. Uh, The point is that after you read the first four verses, you are to be duly impressed by how much it ought to be impossible to partake in these things and not share and demonstrate the same sorts of attitudes. So, if, contingency, if you happen to have any encouragement from being united with Christ, as if, speaking rhetorically, it might be fathomable that you might not be encouraged by being united with Christ. But how could that possibly be? When Paul talks about being united with Christ, he is referring to that that spiritual union, that groundedness, that rootedness from which every spiritual blessing in all the universe flows. Uh, he, He uses the phrase, in Christ, as shorthand for everything that is ours in salvation, and even more. It becomes this this way of, this, this little phrase, becomes this way of encapsulating all that is ours in Jesus Christ, because, in a way which goes beyond our ability to understand, everything that he himself actually is, we are incorporated into, so that we are in him. We are in Christ. We are united. We are tied spiritually, in a sense, organically into Jesus. And this is why you know, we, when we stand before God, this is why we are righteous. In some ways we want to talk about imputation. That is, our unrighteousness is credited to his account and he pays our debt, but his righteousness is imputed or credited to our account so that we are as righteous as he is. His righteous standing is given to us in imputation. And that is important, and that's theologically accurate, and we need to insist on that today. 
But more than that, it is not just that we are giving Christ righteousness. It's that we are giving Christ righteousness because we are actually found in Him. It, it, it is not an abstraction. Uh, it's not a legal fiction. It's not that God just says, well, I'm going to take the righteousness of Christ as some sort of ethereal essence and float it over to you and, and then sort of bathe you in it. It's that we are given the righteousness of Christ. It is imputed to us because God takes us and hides us in Jesus. So that when God looks at his son, he sees us inside of his son, and we can no more be condemned than his son can be condemned. Because what happens to Christ happens to us. What happens to us happens to Christ. We are in him on the day of judgment. It is in him that we have redemption. It is in him that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's in him that we have adoption, that we are his heirs. We are tied to him in his death on the cross. And because we die in his death, we are also buried with him and raised with him. And even, in a sense, ascended with him. So that Paul will say in Ephesians 2, even now there's a sense in which because of our union with Christ, we are already, even now, we are already seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Even now, we are reigning in and with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's an incredible thing. You, you fell out of bed this morning, or, or maybe, maybe depending on your personality, jauntily shot out of bed, doubtless annoying everyone in your home, if that was your attitude. Uh, you, you fell out of bed this morning as someone who, in another sense, is already reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. That you are already positioned in the heavenly realm, because where Christ is, you are. You are hidden in Christ, at the right hand of God the Father, even now. So when God thinks of you, he thinks of the one who is, in one sense, one perspective, one facet. Because the relationship we have with God is multifaceted. But one facet is that he sees us already as perfect, and perfectly righteous, because we are in Christ. Now, if you are a redeemed sinner, your sins have been taken care of, your death has already been died, and you have eternal life, and you already have Christ, you're already in Christ, and the only thing you can look forward to is future consummation and reception of inheritance in a new heaven and new earth. How would it be possible... To know that that's true and derive no encouragement whatsoever from those truths. So if, Paul says, if, if you can bring yourself to find some encouragement in being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love. If any comfort from his love. As if it would be possible to be the recipient of pure and true and infinite love and not to be comforted. As if it would be possible to be loved that much and to find no comfort in that love whatsoever. 
Greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Behold, see it. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished, poured out, overflowing, running over. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. If you can be loved so much, so perfectly, by the God who is love. God is love. And he's more than that. It's multifaceted. But he is love. The Son of God is love. The Son of God is love incarnate. He is more than that, but not less than that. He is love. Fullness of love embodied in human form. Son of God. And he loves us to the point of dying in our place. You cannot be, you cannot be more loved than that. It is not possible. No one can love you the way Christ loves you. No one can. And Paul says, think about love that literally comes from heaven to earth for the sole purpose of dying for your good. And if you can, find no comfort in that at all. If any comfort from his love. If any common sharing in the Spirit. Common sharing in the Spirit. In every believer, where Paul makes his argument quite clear in Romans 8, every believer has the Spirit. You, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not a Christian at all. Uh, this needs to be said and insisted upon in some charismatic circles. Uh, every believer has the Spirit of God. There is one faith, there's one Lord, there's one Spirit, there's one baptism. And, and the one Spirit baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. So, so for every Christian, there is a common sharing in the Spirit. If you're a Christian at all, you share in the Spirit. If any tenderness or compassion, I mean, in, in the face of what Christ has done, in the face of all that God has done for us, in the face of what the Spirit is making, in the face of, of the infinite love of Jesus, how is it possible to have no tenderness and compassion? Well, if you have this, if you have even the smallest bit of encouragement from being united with Christ, if, if any, any at all, comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul says, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Paul says that, that's, that's a power that's in your hands. You can fill me with joy. You can do that. Make my joy complete. Fill it up. Fill me to a point of overflowing with joy. So there's nothing lacking. 
So the experience isn't falling short of anything you know, experienced before or even imaginable. Make it full. Make it complete. Don't be stingy with sharing joy with me, Paul says. I want it all. Uh, I want all of the joy that you are capable of producing in my heart. I want it all. Make my joy complete. Please, don't hold back. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it. Make my joy complete. But how? How do you make joy complete? The first thing that is conducive to joy, apparently, is being like-minded. Sharing thoughts. Being in, in one accord in terms of truth and value and priority. We make each other filled with joy by being like-minded. Having the same love. So we make each other's joy complete by sharing love. By, by being mutual in terms of exchanging and sharing in all that love is. And where does this love come from? We've been reading the text properly. The great love is found in the love of Christ. And so it's focused on Christ, but it, it, it infuses us and then can also overflow out of us. So that the love that we derive the most comfort in, of course, comes from Christ. But Christ, by his Spirit, is also doing this. That is, he, he is building this church together. He, he is building people and community and family together. So that the love of Christ, it is the love of Christ. That, that's the source. It's, it's like the, the sun. The, the sun is the source of light. But the light of God's love is also shed abroad into our hearts. And then, then perhaps like the moon, we can reflect it to other people and all of its beauty. And, and, and so the source is God. God is love. But we become reflectors. So the love of God is made bright and directed towards others. It's his love. But it's a love that comes to us to empower us to love. And then to share that love with others, having the same love. That makes for joy. That fills up joy. That makes sure that there's nothing lacking in joy. We share the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind. One in spirit and of one mind. We will not think identically. The, the, the last thing on earth I would ever wish for you is for you to have to think the way I do. It would be torturous for you, I assure you. Uh, we don't want to share every thought identically. Uh, we want to be able to talk and so that we can actually share different ideas so that, so that you know people need to have a, have a commonality of 
mindfulness and thoughtfulness, literally thoughtfulness, mindfulness. We need to have that 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 common core, uh, and but then we also need to know different things so that we can contribute to each other, so we can learn and grow. And to share the same mind, then you need unity in diversity. And that's what you really need. So we're not carbon copies of each other. We are, but we are similar enough in our mental processes. We share the same spirit and mind, so we can continually, 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 joyfully enrich each other. So that that when there's communication, it's it's refreshing. We're, we're able to grow. There is a post-Socratic philosopher, Gorgias, a great skeptic. Gorgias said, you will recall, uh, he said, nothing exists. Great, great thing for someone to say. Somewhat, somewhat difficult to, to take seriously. But nothing exists. And he said, if anything existed, we couldn't know it. So he said, and if anything existed, we could never explain it to anyone else because we would never use the same language. And as much as all of that sounds stupid, it's actually very, very thought-provoking if you take the time to work it through. I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but have you ever actually, have you actually ever sat down and tried to sort out what a thing is? That's your... Do that this afternoon. You might come to the conclusion that, that nothing exists too, because it's, it's just very, very, very hard to pin down what a thing is. How does it, how does it, what is, what is something? And how does it have continuing identity over time? It's odd. You try to sort that out. But if any, and if anything actually exists, how would you know about it? What kind of being are you to have knowledge? What is knowledge? Those are actually really, really tough questions. But the last point he, he, he makes is very interesting. None of us use words identically. Every word we use is shaped on the basis of every linguistic encounter we've ever had in our lives. So how do I know when you use a word, you mean it precisely the way I do? Or do you? Three and a half centuries before Paul, Gorgias is saying, you can't even communicate with anyone. Nothing exists, and if something did exist, you wouldn't know it, and if you could know it, you could never communicate it. Actually, very interesting. Paul says, you can share a mind. If you can share a mind, you can communicate. If you can share a mind, then you can share a grammar. If you can share a mind, you can share a syntax and vocabulary. You can know, you can speak in a way which is understood. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing. Nothing is to be done out of vain conceit. Nothing. Now, we are to be, basically what Paul is arguing here, is that there is to be such a rich mutuality, there are almost to be like spiritual fraternal twins. And in that, there's no room for jockeying for a position. You, you, you can't just 
then, in this matrix, in this relationship of commonality and mutuality and love and joy and unity and shared mindedness, you can't all of a sudden turn around and start acting at a selfish ambition. How would that be possible? No, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This, again, is tied back to joy. Joy comes when, when love is expressed in unity of mind and spirit and purpose, and through the encouragement you know, of, of all that God has done for us, or the encouragement of being united with Christ. Joy comes when, when instead of worrying about ourselves, we're actually thinking about someone else. When we're acting on behalf of the other, rather than looking out for what we want. You know, looking to, to honor other people, uh, desiring you know, to honor them, to, to see them blessed, in a strange way, uh, joy comes when you're not trying to get it yourself. But when you're looking to make someone else's joy complete. And you find that that's precisely what makes you filled with joy. When there's this kind of shared love and spirit and mind. So happiness comes not when you're aiming for happiness, but just as a, as a byproduct of of living life for others. So we're not to be selfish. We're to be selfless in our love. We're to serve other people selflessly. And in a a paradoxical kind of way, if you're serving someone selflessly, then that is conducive to your own joy. And so in, in, in a very odd way, which, which would almost be impossible to, to get straight linguistically, you, know, you, you can actually, the most, if you want to be filled with joy, you need to be selfless, which becomes almost the most self-centered thing imaginable if you're actually trying to be filled with joy. You know, if that's your goal, uh, if you're looking at yourself, then look to others. Because it's when you look to others when you just love them. And not for return. Never never to get something from someone, but just to love, just to bless. It's amazing what God will do. So, so that, in your relationships with one another. So what Paul is saying is this. This ought to be the way it is in the church. It should be like this. In your relations with one another, there should be joy. There should be mutuality. There should be like-mindedness. There should be nothing done out of selfish ambition. There should be comfort. There should be love. There should be encouragement. This should characterize our relationships in the church. The question is, does it? Is, is, there, is there actual joy? Like real joy. I'm not talking about you know, superficial things. Real joy, is there, is there deep love? Is there actual unity? Is there a shared mind? That's the way it ought to be. That's relationship at its best, according to God. But where do we see this? We see this in its most dramatic instance. The epitome of all of this is, of course, found not in us, 
but in Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We, we need to be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? What was his attitude towards relationship? He was in the very nature of God. Literally, it's uh, being in the very form of God. The problem with that language today is people hear form of and think it was sort of like he was the appearance of God, or he was like God. He, was, he wasn't quite God, but he was in the form of God. And that's how we use that, the word, that's how the word form in English uh, sort of gets understood. But, if you know your Plato, which of course you do, you know that for Plato, the forms were the real thing. The, the, the realm of ideas, the realm of the forms, was, was the eternal, immutable, unchanging realm of reality. And that all of the material world was just a copy and a shadow of the real, which was the form. And so when Paul uses the word form, being in the very form of God, what he's meaning, what he's, what he's meaning in that cultural context and linguistic context is Christ was exactly everything God is. Everything that God is, he is the very form of God. He doesn't just participate in the form of Godness, the way Plato would say, well, how do we know what um, a saxophone is? Well, as every particular saxophone on earth participates somehow in this ideal, eternal saxophone, the form of the saxophone that exists in its own little realm. Christ is not deity, what? Oh, I'm sorry. Violin. Is that better? You're, you're jealous I use the saxophone for my illustration. Sorry about that. Musicians are so temperamental. Oh, my goodness. I'll talk on this side of the room for a while. At least the... Sam's too slow to come up and assault me if he's offended, so I'll just... I'm safe for over here. I, it's, it's, it's not that, that Jesus somehow participates in the form of deity. It's not that there's God and Jesus kind of participates in him. Is that he is God. He's the form of God. He's everything God is. And what does he do? He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. The, the, the translation here, the enemy, it's, it's a bit of a paraphrastic translation, but it's the, it is the exact idea. It's not something to be used to his own advantage. It's exactly what Paul means. Not exactly what he means. He's God. And he decides to use all that God is for us. In humility. God is a humble God. The one who is transcendent and high and exalted and, and infinitely glorious, the one who commands us to worship him with reverence and awe, is also one who is humble, who stoops and condescends to us, who meets us where we are. Christ is exactly God. 
And instead of using all of his power, all of his might, all of his strength, all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom, all of his glory, just to to sit back and be praised and adored, he uses all that he is, every attribute of deity, he uses for us. God, precisely because he is God, made himself nothing. God! The one who is everything. The one, the one who is the sum total of, of every perfection and who has every perfection maximally and infinitely. He made himself nothing. The Son of God. Fully God. Not, not missing the, the tiniest tiniest bit of the essence and attributes of God himself, the Son of God made himself nothing of no account. He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And not only is it in one sense, an enormous, enormous downgrade to become a person. But what a person. The lowest servant and slave of all. I'm not sure if you've, if you've ever thought about this, but, but you do realize that... that the Son of God didn't, didn't even become incarnate in a time when there was air conditioning. All, all of the comforts that we take for granted, he, he chose to come in, in a time and period of history where there just wasn't, there just wasn't those, that sort of comfort. He, he didn't have a car. He didn't have an iPhone, which actually would, would be worth it, <laughs> now that I think about it. No, he didn't, he didn't have any of those, those luxuries, all those things, all those things. No, he came in a brutal time in history, and he came to be a servant. He acted like the lowest slave, despised and rejected. He, out of nothing but pure love, right before he went to the cross, which was the ultimate act of humiliation and suffering, he he literally acted out the part of the lowest slave in the household when he washed his disciples' feet, redeeming a symbol of exploitation and oppression with his love. But make no mistake, in doing that, he was demonstrating slavehood. God. Acting as a slave. We who are created to be his servants rebel against him to establish ourselves as the ones on the throne of the universe. 
we who ought to consider it the highest privilege in the world to do the most menial thing for him. We curse him and push him off his throne, install ourselves as usurpers, and he, precisely because he is God, makes himself nothing and washes our feet. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. The incarnation is enough in terms of humility. The foot washing is beyond imagination. The death on a cross is something which, at this point, we are incapable of actually feeling. Because we are so familiar with the crucifix, we are so familiar with crosses of gold, we are so familiar with songs and hymns and stories and endless Sunday school lessons and interminable sermons about the cross where it's such a part of our vocabulary and thinking, we are incapable of hearing it with fresh ears and seeing it with fresh eyes, apart from the grace and Holy Spirit of God. We have deadened ourselves with familiarity to these things. In the same way that that Da Vinci's Mona Lisa actually is one of the greatest expressions of visual art and painting in history that, that can be looked at for long periods of time and, and, and day after day after day, different moods, and, and, there's, and there's always something different in the face. And it's been travestied in our appreciation of it by becoming a pop cultural icon which appears in countless forms in countless places so the beauty is, is marred and lost by the, by the ubiquitous exposure to it. So that it's, so it's a parody of itself. When it's devastatingly beautiful if apprehended for what it is. But how much more the cross to talk flippantly and cavalierly about the cross, to, to, to listen to, to songs that are written like they're pop 40 songs on Christian radio as we're doing endless other things, distracted with, with all other things. And so the cross becomes a background. We're not even thinking about it anymore. But no, when Paul is writing, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A cross. Not merely the physical pain and disgrace. Not merely death. But the Jews knew perfectly well that whoever died on a cross died under the curse of God, according to the law. There was Christ. In nature, God made nothing to be a servant, to be a slave, out of love, to wash feet to die, and to die under the curse of God. That's what God did. The Son of God died under the curse of God because he was God for us. 
And that is the mindset we are to have to one another. To out of love, wash each other's feet. To out of love, more, die on a cross. If that's what we're called to. Therefore, though, Luther was quite, quite right to identify the, the fact that the theology of the cross comes before the theologia gloria, the theology of glory, but the theology of glory comes too. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, glory, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Because, the question is, well, why would Jesus die? Jesus didn't just demonstrate his love for us. Jesus' love, the cross isn't just a fiat demonstration. Dying for someone for no purpose isn't a display of love. The fact that Jesus dies on the cross, the reason that it's loving is because he actually does something for us. He accomplishes something. He atones for our sin. And because he atones for our sin, because he actually dies our death, and the pr- our problem of sin is removed and taken care of, uh, and God is propitiated, God's wrath is satisfied, our sins are, are removed from us, we are wiped clean, we are washed, our sin is atoned for, we, our legal guilt is removed, our defilement is cleansed. All of these things happen through the death of Christ on our behalf, because of his love. And because of that... Because the cross is actually an atonement, not a death. And it's not, even, it's not even a martyrdom. It's an atonement. We need to understand that. It is not just something to evoke sympathy that the world rejected Jesus. They did. In that sense, it was a martyrdom, yes. But it was much more than a martyrdom. It was atonement. It was redemption. It was the cost of salvation. And because that was accepted, God vindicated Jesus. He raised him to life to show that everything he'd ever done and said and been had been pleasing and honoring to God the Father. Whatever the Son did pleased the Father. In fact, there's a sense in which, you know, uh, how, how multifaceted it all is, but there's a sense in which Jesus Christ was never more pleasing to God than when God was venting his wrath upon him. Because in that moment, as the Father saw the extent of the love of His Son for sinners, knowing that His Son was dying not for His intrinsic wickedness, for He had none, but His Son was dying for the intrinsic wickedness and the acts of other people, when the Father poured out His wrath upon the Son, He poured out His wrath upon the Son, knowing His Son was a willing, volunteering, volunteering, loving substitute. And the Father... Love the Son in the moment that the Father poured the wrath out upon the Son. The love of the Trinity was never broken. Never. Even when God the Father poured out His wrath for my sin upon His Son. So God exalted him. God raised him to the highest place, far above every name and power. Gave him the name that is above every name, named him Lord. So that the name of Jesus, every tongue 
will confess. Every knee will bow. You do realize that, that every creature God has ever made is going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will do so with joy. But it means that everyone will, in fact, acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord. It's an objective fact. You don't even need to believe that Jesus exists. But he is your Lord. You cannot make Jesus Lord of your life. It's not possible. Because Jesus is the Lord of everyone's life. Jesus is Lord of everything. Jesus is your Lord whether you love him or hate him. Jesus is your Lord whether you you believe in him or whether you don't believe that he even exists. He is your Lord. He is objectively reigning. He is Lord. And day is coming when every creature that has ever existed will acknowledge that. Jesus, you are Lord. Every creature will sink to its knees before him. Some overwhelmed with the consummation of joy and love. And others grudgingly and broken and defeated by a greater power. But every knee is going to sink before Christ. Because he is Lord. All of this is to the glory of God the Father. Our whole purpose is to glorify God. That's why we exist. All of this, our attitudes through the gospel, is for the glory of God the Father. So may we imitate Jesus. May we be like Jesus in your relationships with one another. Joy. Love. Unity. Humility. Same mindset as Christ Jesus. And where you find those things then, you will find people who are, by definition, imitating Christ. And there you will find the glory of God the Father. Well, may God help us have these things. Don't leave here today without bowing the knee and asking Jesus to be your Savior. I don't say ask him to be your Lord because he is your Lord already. Ask him to save you. Ask him to show you his love. Ask him to help you see the beauty of his Lordship. So you acknowledge it with joy and with gratitude now and forevermore. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, don't don't leave here today uh, without talking to me, without talking to someone else. Don't leave here today without praying and asking for God's mercy and grace. Don't leave here without asking Jesus to show you who he is and to save you from your sins through what he did on the cross. Ask him to, to allow you to live through his resurrection life, all to the glory of God the Father. I'm gonna... So our Father, we ask that by your Son's righteousness and by your Spirit, we will have the same mindset as Christ Jesus.
Help us to marvel in a fresh way at your great love for us and help us to reflect it. Thank you for the joy that we can have in sharing a mind and love and heart because we are united together with you, hidden in Christ, the one who made himself nothing to die on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we love you, we honor you. You are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us as we go. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.